The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 20, three days later, Amasa still had not gotten his men together. There still was no army assembled, and now Sheba was three days in the run, gathering together his forces to lead a rebellion against David. Compare those three guys who got David a drink of water with Amasa. What do you see? You see three guys who uh, cared for nothing else more in their life than the interests of King David because they loved their king. And then you've got Amasa who apparently has more important things to do. He probably spent all three days browsing Facebook. I should, they didn't have Facebook back then. I don't want to lead you astray. I'm just saying he found other things to do. This should not have been complicated. You say, well, maybe he was just an incompetent general, and he just couldn't gather his men. No, 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 that's not even possible. All he would have had to do is say to his men, King David needs you. And what do you think those men would have said? We're on it. He needs a drink of water behind enemy lines? No worries. Let's do it. So Amasa apparently did not have the same level of affection for David. He did not have the same level of love and interest for David's interests. So the question is, why was Amasa willing to serve David? We'll look at Amasa's history. When Absalom was king, who was Amasa loyal to? Well, Absalom. Now that David's king, who was Amasa loyal to? David. If Barney the dinosaur was king, who would Amasa be loyal to? Barney the dinosaur. This is a guy who understands what it means to serve, but not from love. He serves from a sense of what is expedient. What is personally beneficial? Now that there is a, a significant rebellion going on in the land, and Sheba is leading a rebellion that looks like it might, in fact, get traction, Amasa needs to hedge his bets. Well, what if Sheba is king in a month or two? And I'm leading the army against Sheba. Well, that's not going to be personally expedient. And so I think I'll drag my feet a little bit and see how things hash out. The result was because he only was serving when things were expedient, when he thought things were no longer expedient for him personally, his sense of service, devotion uh, to the king and his interests begins to wane. Three days later, David realizes Amasa hasn't gotten the men together, and he turns to Joab's brother, and it says to Joab's brother, not Joab, he has a beef with Joab, will till he, the day he dies. He says, listen, Amasa's useless. Go get the guys together and go take care of Sheba. And like I said, in about three minutes, the army's gathered, and they're on the march. On the way, the army, including Joab, run into, guess who? Sheba, skipping through the tulips. Who knows what he's doing? And he says, hey, where are, you, where are you guys going? What's up? Joab says, my brother, because they're related in some ways. My brother, and now Joab had a sword, a dagger on his left hip, and he stepped forward. And the Bible tells us the dagger fell out of his sheath. It either fell out of his sheath into his hand or onto the ground. But either way, the Bible says that he picked up this, the dagger with one hand and he put his right hand, and that's important, he put his right hand on uh, Amasa's beard as a sense of affection and loyalty. So now his weapon is his left hand, which is unusual. Only one other guy I can remember killed somebody with his left hand. Killed a fat man, Ehud Eglon. You can look it up in the book of Judges. Happened in a bathroom. See, now you're interested. Google it. You'll want to read the story. So Joab puts his hand on, his, on Amasa's cheek and says, My brother, and leans in as if to kill him. And Amasa, uh, Joab stabs him just the one time. The Bible says it only took one shot because 
Joab knew what he was doing. Lefty or righty, he knew how to kill a guy. And the Bible says his entrails, I don't want to be gross, but this is what the Bible says, spilled out of him. And everybody was actually surprised to realize the guy had any guts at all. (laughs) That was terrible. It's horrible. It's awful. (laughs) Now I've lost you. Happy Father's Day. Let's dismiss. So Joab kills the guy. One thing leads to another. They drag him off the field of battle, and Joab leads the march. We're going to finish the story here in a minute, but we need to understand. Amasa's problem was not a lack of competency. Amasa's problem was a lack of love for his king. He didn't love the king. He loved the king's interests when those interests were his own interests, when serving the king was expedient for his own purposes, What Joab lacks in morals, and believe me, Joab lacks morals. I would say he had poor morals if he had morals. But what Joab lacks in morals, he makes up for in devotion to the king. He would die for King David. In fact, he would kill for King David. Amasa, in his passivity, demonstrates that uh, he had no real love for the king. He only had a love for the king to the degree that it was in his interest. We have to think about this in relation to our relationship with our king, King Jesus, and our father, the uh, father on the throne, God. We have to vigorously root out service in our life and devotion to Christ in our life that is based primarily on return on investment. That is primarily based on, I will serve God and His kingdom. I will serve Christ and His kingdom to the degree that it is personally expedient. We need to vigorously learn to love God and have our service and devotion to God fueled not by God's expediency to us, but rather because of our love for Him personally. Our service should not flow from a hope for a return on investment, but our service and devotion to God should flow from a hope that we could show Him and demonstrate our love to Him. It's only by serving and knowing God in in His uh, kingdom that is done through love that we can avoid rebellion. Let me put it this way. We sometimes think of rebellion as kind of either on or off. You're either a a rebel or not a rebel. And Amasa shows us a little something I'm going to label this way. It's what I call soft rebellion. It's a weird name, isn't it? But sometimes we remember weird, so that's my hope there. The soft rebellion is that rebellion which says, I am not so devoted to God that I can't uh, sit back and be lax. I can sit back and be passive. I'm not rebelling against God because I'm not doing anything really naughty. I'm just not doing anything. And what Amasa shows us is being passive to God in His purposes is is a form of rebellion. It's to say, well, your things seem important, God. I hope somebody takes care of that. That seems really, really important to you. But I'm going to just sit back because uh, jumping in on that opportunity or serving in that particular way, I don't know how that's going to pay off. Ask yourself this question if you don't mind. If you do mind, um, that's your problem. I mean that in the nicest way possible. How has God been expedient for you? How has God been uh, served your interests? He's served our interests in so many ways because He's gracious. Let me just name a couple of things while you're thinking. 
because of the work of Christ, we uh, don't have to experience or live in guilt. I mean, you got to think about that. I mean, some of you guys have done some really crazy stuff. I mean, you haven't told anybody. And guess what? Jesus said, you don't have to feel guilty over that. I mean, isn't that awesome? I mean, we still do because we like to nurse guilt, and that's the way we're wired. But the fact is, Jesus, no matter what it is, when we come to him and receive his grace and his salvation, he says, listen, you're totally forgetting, but I want you to carry the guilt with you because it's going to help keep the rails straight, right? No, what does he say? There is now no condemnation. So when we come to Christ for forgiveness, he actually wipes away all guilt. We never as a Christian, again, have to experience any kind of guilt in our life. We never have to carry the burden of our sin. We no longer have to feel ashamed. As a Christian, how righteous are you? If you put your faith in Christ, how righteous are you? Only as righteous as Jesus. So if you're as righteous as Jesus in Christ, how much shame are you required to feel? None. I mean, isn't that pretty epic? That's awesome. Or maybe I shouldn't say that. You might think I've done something bad. I've done some pretty bad stuff. We all have. And we don't have to walk through life with guilt. We don't have to walk through life with shame. How amazing is it that when bad stuff happens or when good stuff happens, we can come to God anytime we want and pray? I mean, that's pretty great. Anytime we want, we don't have to make amends. We don't have to uh, do penance. We don't have to uh, do whatever. We just come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm in a world of hurt right now, and I need you to show up. How great is that, that we can come to God in prayer anytime we want? That's fantastic. How great is it that God has given us things in our life that we can learn, habits and disciplines which actually fuel a great, a great life that we have when we learn to be in His Word and we learn to be in prayer. It actually makes a lot of things, there are benefits to those kinds of things. There are studies that have been done for people who pray and attend church services, and frankly, it doesn't even matter what flavor. Mormon, JW, Islam, uh, attending uh, synagogue, or even a church like this, the, the health benefits of regular church attendance and prayer are off the charts. Isn't that crazy? So we experience these benefits. How about the friends we have in the Lord? Aren't there some great friends you have in the Lord? Now think of the good ones. Don't look around. Somebody will think they're the bad one. Isn't it great to have friends that we have in common our faith in Christ? Aren't these great things? We should celebrate these things. We should remember these things. Uh, the challenge we need to face uh, that Amasa was facing is do we serve God only because these benefits we experience? Do we, do we serve the Lord only because of the expediency of not having to live with guilt and shame and prayer and having a good uh, friend network around us? Or do we serve God because we actually love the guy? Or do we serve God because God, I mean, he's just a great God. And these other things are just side benefits to the fact that we know God. Well, the way we discover that is what happens when the benefits fade of serving the Lord. What happens when the benefits of serving the Lord aren't there? 
One article in Forbes magazine, actually it was on their online edition in Forbes, had a number of things that we discover about religious people. And by religious, I mean religious. These aren't Christ followers necessarily, some of which are, but like I said, this is broadly speaking, people who have regular religious practice, from those who attend synagogue, attend mosque, uh, evangelical Christians, Catholic tr Christians, Mormons, anyone, the, the people who call themselves religious. I'm not affirming one way or the other the truth claims of those, you understand? So if you're, gonna, if you're currently typing an email to me, at least hear the end of the sermon before you finish it. Here's a couple of things I've highlighted. Seven years longer of life expectancy. We have stronger immune systems, those who are religious. We have lower blood pressure generally. A lower rate of juvenile delinquency among minors and less drug use, less smoking, better school attendance. A higher probability among religious people of graduating from high school. Religious people in general commit fewer crimes. I might suggest they just get caught fewer times. Religious people, we are taught from a young age how to cover up our misdeeds, right? Religious people give more money to charity. Listen to this. This is Forbes magazine looking at the economic impact of religious people in the United States. The American economy benefits to the tune of 2.6 trillion dollars per year because of religious people in the country. That's, if you're wondering, one-sixth of our total economic output that if we were irreligious might be erased. But here's the thing. We can say something like this. Well, religious people in their children have a lower rate of juvenile delinquency. But what did it not say? Did it say there's no juvenile delinquency? It's at a lower rate. So we serve the Lord for the benefit of my kid won't end up in juvie, right? And then what happens? All of a sudden you're that parent and you're a juvie. All of a sudden you're that parent and you're putting your kid in a drug addiction program. These things happen to real people in our church. And all of a sudden, we have to think, okay, now, am I serving God because of these uh, expedient benefits of knowing Him, or am I serving God because I love Him? Because now, life took a turn I wasn't expecting, and I'm not sure if it's paying off. For Amasa, as soon as his relationship with David wasn't paying off, eject. If we're going to love God and His kingdom and the king who is on the throne... Christ, we have to decide, do we love God or do we merely love the benefits that God provides? And then that would lead us to this question, how can we love God and enjoy His benefits? Well, before we answer that question, let's look at the other part of this story. To love the king, we said, first of all, is to love the king's interests over and against our own interests. And finally, we should say this, to love the king is to love the king's inheritance. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. In 2 Samuel 19, we, uh, and we talked about this maybe last week, a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was grandson of the former king Saul. When David took over the throne, everybody in Saul's family normally, if it was a normal kingdom, would have been killed. But David did not do that, and he spared Mephibosheth. To remind you, uh, David brought Mephibosheth into his home, and he ate at his table with his sons. Mephibosheth, when he was a very young boy, had been dropped, and his legs were injured, and he was unable to walk. 
In fact, what had happened when Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in the field of battle, the household fled, and the woman who was caring for young Mephibosheth in her haste dropped him. And so he uh, couldn't care for himself because of his uh, physical disability, and the king David was actually caring for him, which which is incredible. When David returned from exile after Absalom's rebellion, he met Mephibosheth, and there was some confusion as to whether or not Mephibosheth had been loyal to King David. King David determined that Mephibosheth had been loyal, and he said to Mephibosheth, you can have half of your property back, and your servant will have the other half. This is 2 Samuel 19, verse 30. Mephibosheth said this. I challenge any of you to say Mephibosheth correctly more than once in a row. I literally spent 30 hours this week practicing that. (laughs) Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Let him take everything. Now that my lord, the king, has returned home safely. Mephibosheth here is demonstrating that his heart and his affection is not merely the king's inheritance, the land. His heart and affection was moved by the presence of the king himself. If I have the king, I have everything I need. If I have the king, I have everything I could possibly want. Let's compare that with Sheba. 2 Samuel 20, verse 1 again. Sheba, son of Bichri, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and said, We have no share in David. We have no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. Sheba here is declaring that, listen, if we're not going to get a piece of the pie like we think we should have, then we don't need David. Judah seems preferred over us. And if we're not going to get a piece of the influence and the power and the significance that Judah seems to be getting, then we don't need David. We love the land, and we love the land, not because it's the king's kingdom and the king's land, but we we love the land and the inheritance of the king because that's the place where we find respect and where we find recognition and where we find power and prominence. And if we're going to get a lesser share, well, who needs the king? We've lost what we really want, the king's inheritance, the king's power, the king's recognition and his prominence. These are the things the king has for us as our king. And now that it seems like those things are lessened, we have no interest in him. And so Sheba leads his rebellion. Sheba may have a lot of things he was good at. He was not good at leading rebellions. So he ran away from the king. Of course, he had three days head start because you remember Massa was dragging his feet. And he ended up in a town to the far north of uh, the people of Israel. The Bible tells us in the region near Dan, which was the farthest north you could get. It was north of the Sea of Galilee. He made his way into a city and decided he was going to make his last stand there. And this is in 2 Samuel 20, verses 18 and 19. Joab is leading the troops, as you remember, because Amasa has had an on-the-job injury. Sheba has made his way into this city and is making his last stand there. The gates are closed, and, and Joab has come to the city and is building siege works against it. He is doing what is often done, building a siege ramp 
which they would build the ramp of earth up into the city walls as high as they could get it based on the the geography. And then as high as they could get, then they'd throw hooks and rocks and other things to try and get the wall to fall over. And then they'd invade the city. Once the wall was down, it was pretty uh, pretty well uh, conquered. So while they were doing this, wise woman comes to the city wall and she wants to talk to Joab. And this is verse 18 of 2 Samuel 20. The woman says, long ago, she's talking to Joab, they used to say, get your answer at Abel. Abel is the region this city is in. And at the time, that settled the the question. Verse 19, what uh, we, I should say, are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother to Israel. Why do you want to swallow up, listen, the Lord's inheritance? Why do you want to destroy that which is the Lord's, the city of God's inheritance? Another way she's saying this, why do you want to destroy king, the king's city? She's speaking Joab's language. She understands it's important that the king's city be maintained. And Joab responds in verse 20, far be it from me. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to destroy anything. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. This is Joab saying this. Can you, this guy kills people on the weekends just for fun. But he's being serious. He's not there to merely destroy the city. He says a man's name Sheba is hiding in your city. He's the one we're after. The wise woman goes into the city, talks to the people, and they say, we got a problem. we got an army outside and a fugitive inside. Joab says, hand over the man. And the woman says to Joab, we'll send part of him. His head will be tossed to you from the wall. She goes into her city, convinces her city that this is the wise thing to do. The city removed uh, Sheba's head. The rebellion was over, and Joab had a trinket to take home and show to David. The wise woman understood she was harboring a fugitive, wanted to, because her interests were the king's interests, her interests were God's interests, let's not destroy the Lord's inheritance. What do we need to do here? The king is a covenant king, the land is a covenant land, and God is a covenant-keeping God. And Joab says, easy problem, get rid of the oath-breaker. Get rid of the one who is not keeping the covenant and is compromising the inheritance. And the wise woman understood that and had Sheba's head tossed over the wall. This is a gruesome chapter, isn't it? It's not even the grossest chapter in the Bible. The king, the king's interests for his kingdom and the king's inheritance, the land of Israel, these, all these things are bound up not in King David himself, But all of these things are bound up in God Himself because God is the covenant-keeping God. This isn't just a story about David. This is a story about God telling us how He operates in the world around us, telling us how He operates in bringing redemption to mankind, and He will not compromise on His covenant. The king and his interests and his inheritance are bound up by God Himself because God is the covenant-keeping God. This whole story is not about David reestablishing his throne. This whole story is all about God himself and the inheritance he brings to his people. Sheba wanted to enjoy the inheritance of the land without this bothersome king. 
Isn't it annoying when you know what you're into and the king doesn't seem to be into it? Well, what's the easy fix? Get rid of the king. So again, we might ask ourselves that question again. How have we savored and enjoyed and appreciated the inheritance we have in God? Do we savor and enjoy the friendships and the family relationships that have been bolstered and strengthened because of the covenant promises of God? Do we enjoy the support and strength that we receive from family and friends in the body of Christ during times of trial and trouble? Do we enjoy the benefits in our homes of being able to see one another grow and continue to grow in the love and affection for God and in the ways that uh, can build and strengthen our families? Do we savor and enjoy in times of hardship and difficulty the fact that we have uh, a people of God that God will use to bring to bear our uh, needs and our help? Have we savored the good things of God? Is it because we merely want those good things of God, those connectedness, those strengthening supports that that help in time of need, or is it because God has provided those things that we love those things? Do we love the king, or do we merely love the inheritance he has poured out on us with his blessing and his joy? What happens in our lives spiritually, in our relationship with God, when the inheritance we have received from God seems a small thing. This is what happened to Sheba. He saw the inheritance he was going to get from King David, and it was smaller than he liked, and likely it was smaller than what he already had. What happens when we enjoy, sure, the relationships we have with people in the body of Christ and the strength we receive and the support we receive from others? But, you know, the fact is I've got other friends, too, which is great. I'm not, don't take that wrong. You say, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I could enjoy the support and strengthening of people when there's time of need, but, frankly, God has been good to me. I don't know that I have a lot of needs. I, the Lord has poured out His blessing on me. I, yeah. I'm not worried about tomorrow. Better yet, I'm not worried about next year. My health is good. My land is good. The Lord has blessed me. What happens in those moments? And this this is a very common occurrence for us, isn't it? The Lord has been so good to us, and now all of a sudden the, the inheritance of God Himself, a calling to serve God with our life, in our community, and in our church, that seems like kind of a small thing. Yeah, we love Jesus, and we love His church, and we love His people, but i got bigger deals going on. All of a sudden, Jesus goes from being our meal to being a side dish. And then Jesus goes from being a side dish to a garnish. And we just need a little bit of Jesus in our life because we have a real important and powerful and interesting life And we just need some Jesus in there to kind of give it some significance and some spirituality. Do we love God or do we just love the inheritance He has poured out on us? I think that's a fair question we must ask. Maybe you don't like the fact that I brought it up and I'm unapologetic, so what what can I tell you? How can we love God and and His inheritance? How can we love God and the good things He's given us? Should we? 
Let me close with this. For those of you who are here for the first time, when I say let's close with this, we're not even close. Not, I don't want you to be misinformed. I mean, you don't even see the airport at this point. How can we love God? How can we love His benefits? How can we also love His inheritance? All of that together. How, how can we have in us an affection for God that is not compromised when we enjoy His benefits? How do we have a a love for God that enjoys Him when it's expedient and also enjoys Him when it's not? How do we have a love for God that is a love for God when He pours out His blessing and His generosity, which is for most of us, frankly? And how can we also maintain that deep affection for God when things are thin and things are hard? Well, the trick is we start with God and we stay with God. The trick is we're not seeking His benefits and His inheritance, We're seeking God Himself, and God's benefits in His inheritance will come. We're assured of that. Let me show you this in Genesis 3, verse 6. Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, were told by God not to eat from a particular tree, and we've mentioned this before, it's the tree of prime rib. How could they pass it up? Uh, The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband and she ate it. And now in that instant, the relationship of mankind with God was rifted apart, rended apart. And now it was defined by not wholeness and transparency and, uh, and truth. It was defined by division. And frankly, it was defined by death, separation from God and mankind. And the Bible says this in verse 7, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed together fig leaves and made coverings for themselves and they hid themselves. The man and the woman hid themselves, this is verse 8, when they heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called out to them. I want us to understand something. There's a lot we could talk about. I just want to make one uh, thing clear from this. When we read about this, this tragedy, what, say how many people died in this, just everybody, what we tend to see is the sin of mankind driving them to hide and to cover in shame and guilt. And these things are all true. But, but I think, on balance, if we look at the whole Scripture and the story God is telling, that's not the primary thing that we're supposed to see from this. What are we supposed to see? Not man hiding. What? God walking. See, this is what we will tend to do is think the whole point of that story is, look, we're ashamed and we're guilty. No, the whole point of this story is God comes for people who are hiding. How do you know that God is a gracious God from the beginning? There's a Genesis 4. If he wasn't, there was no need for it. The fact that there's another chapter in the Bible after Genesis 3 tells us something about God's nature. He comes for people in hiding in their shame and their guilt. The point of Genesis 3 is in man's sin, not that we must hide from God. The point of Genesis 3, in man's sin, God comes walking for us. Somehow in our lives, we get this all screwed up in our head. We are convinced that God is repulsed by us because He actually knows everything we've ever done, and we assume that if He comes into the room with us, He is going to do so holding His nose. All right, I love you, but if I hadn't said it in the Bible, I wouldn't. I'm stuck with you now. Or as one commentator said, we know that God loves us because the Bible tells us so much, but we know He doesn't like us very much. 
The whole point of the Bible at the very beginning is to tell us God walks and seeks those who are hiding in their shame and their guilt. That's the whole point of the rest of the Bible. When you read Genesis 3, you say, what's the story going to be about? The story is going to be about a man, God himself, walking into the shame of people to bring them out of their hiding. That's the whole story. It's, it's the way the narrative is laid out. Let me show you how I know that's true. Hosea 3. Who's read Hosea? I've recommended you read Hosea before. Craziest story in the Bible. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. No, Gomer Pyle. It's for the, some of you. Tells God to marry Gomer. They have a couple of kids. They've got some interesting names. Uh, but anyway, over time, Gomer leaves Hosea. She is not faithful to Hosea. We're not sure what happened to her. She might have fallen on hard times financially. The sad truth is she ends up becoming a prostitute, likely to make her ends meet. And God says this in Hosea chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. How does God love His people? He walks into their shame and guilt. That's what He does. That's what He's into. God, what are you into? I go to people who are hiding. So God said, I want you to go love her like I do. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. I, I don't know. That was a way that they worshipped idols was through the sacred raisin cakes. So here's Hosea. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about her homer and a lethek of barley. Verse 3, I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. I will behave the same way toward you. You ever been in Walmart behind a little kid buying an RC car or something? A little 10-year-old kid puts the RC car up on the conveyor belt. You can barely see over the thing, right? He says, oh, it'd be $24.99. It's a rollback price. And a little kid pulls out of his pocket all these crumpled ones and fives and piles them up there, and, he, and she's got to flatten them out, right? And then what? she's like, well, that's 22 So then what? he goes into his other pocket and he pulls the quarters out, and then the nickels... And then the pennies, and he got a, the, the exact amount. What do you know about that kid's net worth at that point? He spent everything he had. Because there is not a coin in a couch in that house, I can tell you that much. He scraped and scrounged. And this is how Hosea uh, redeemed back Gomer. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. He knew that wasn't going to cut it. What else do I got? I got barley. That's the most expensive thing I got. Okay, I'm going to see if I can, I can swing this thing with some silver and barley. It's like he was going through his house, scraping together everything he could to redeem her back. And in verse 3, this is what Hosea told her. There's another translation I like better, and I'm going to read it to you. Here's what it says. Uh, this is from a commentator. I said to her, many days you will remain with me, and you shall neither prostitute yourself, nor will be, you will be, excuse me, nor be with any man, and then I shall be yours. I want you to notice the difference there is critically important. He goes and redeems Gomer out of her slavery. Who owns who? I will be yours, he says. See, this is what redemption looks like. Jesus comes, if you can put it this way, God scrounges his way through heaven. What can I do to redeem this people? Uh, it's expensive. It's going to cost me everything I've got. All I've got is my son. Go and do it. And then he redeems us out of our slavery and our shame because that's what he's into. He goes to meet people in their hiddenness and in their shame. 
and he draws us out and redeems us and says, you would expect him to say, right? You're mine now. Now you got to do what I tell you. You got to share the gospel at work and lose your job if you're really faithful. And don't you imagine, don't you sometimes imagine God's in heaven just shaking his head, looking down his long nose? I can't believe you. If I didn't have all those promises. But this is not how he works. He says, I will redeem you at the cost of everything I have in heaven, his own son, and now you come to me, and and the, the nature of the relationship is different. I, God says, shall be yours. This is why we must start with God and stay with God. This is a pretty amazing God. This is the nature of his being to come to rebels and say, I'm yours. I've redeemed you. To be redeemed is to be purchased out of our shame and purchased out of our guilt. But what I'm worried about is sometimes we stop at the redemption. See, the redemption is the transaction. The kid buying the RC car at Walmart, he now uh, has the, the RC car, and we say, we are redeemed. And that, that's merely a transaction. We say, well, yeah, I've, cern- I've sinned. Jesus paid for it. I'm in the kingdom of God. Business is concluded. But see, God is saying to be redeemed is to be reconciled, to come out of hiding, to come out of our shame, and to be reconciled to God who is so loving and caring that He would redeem us, right? So to be redeemed is to be reconciled. It's not a transaction. We're redeemed into relationship with God, where we're moved by the depth of His love for us, even in our rebellion. And to be reconciled is, in fact, to live reconciled. Jesus redeemed us that we might have God himself. Jesus redeemed us that we might have God himself. Oh, we got plenty of time. Luke 15, the parable of the lost son. I think this is Jesus talking about this same theme. Jesus tells the story. There's a man, he has two sons. You know the story, right? Called the story of the prodigal son, uh, the story of the lost son. The younger son comes to the dad and says, Dad, uh, can I have my part of the inheritance? And the dad uh, liquidates some of his assets and gives his part of the inheritance to his younger son. That was the way this younger son communicated to the father that I love your stuff more than I love you. I just assumed you were dead because you're kind of in the way of my inheritance. The God, oblige, uh, the, God uh, the father obliges, and the son goes off and spends his money in ways that we might not consider wise financial stewardship. There was no Dave Ramsey to help him. I mean, what was he supposed to do? There's no snowball. Um, the older brother stays and keeps working. The younger brother runs out of his cash, um, ends up broke, ends up feeding pigs, which is real bad. So he makes his way back to his father and basically says, I want to be your servant. And the father, when he sees his son a long way off, runs to his son to greet him, throws a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger, and throws uh, a party, a huge party. Kills the fattened calf, brings in a DJ. It was awesome. The older son hates the father because he has brought the younger son back. The older son is angry and he is, he is livid. And look at verse 11. Uh, well, verse 11. I'm gonna, we, for the sake of time, let's scroll down to the bottom. Verse 25. Verse 25 of Luke 15, if I didn't say that. Party's going on, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field working hard. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Luke 15, 26. So he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? And 
the servant says, your brother's come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in to the party. The father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, Father, look, all these years I've been slaving away for you, and I've never disobeyed you. You've never even given me a goat so I could have a party. But when this little son of yours who squandered your property on prostitutes comes home, you throw a big party for him. The older brother hated his father because of the father's redemptive interests. He hated the father because his father was redeeming father. He hated his father because his father would offer grace and mercy to this younger son, and he hated his father because God's redemptive interests compromised his own interests. The younger son, before he returned, hated his father because he was in the way of his inheritance. If his father were dead, he could have his money. And what does the father say to the one who hates him because of his a redemptive interest, and what does he say to the son who hates him because he wants his inheritance? What does he say to both of them? I want you with me. Notice he invited the older son into the party. He said, no, no, you miss it. Come in, celebrate with me. Get off your religious high horse. Come in. He was talking to the religious leaders at the time. Come in, let's have a party. You won't believe this DJ. He is throwing down some tunes. We know the, the father could dance. We know that. What did he say to the son? He was lost and now he's found. This is what the father is like. He says, I want, I want you with me. I, his heart is moved uh, to be with us. To be redeemed is to be reconciled, and to be reconciled is to live reconciled, to live in the love and affection of God himself. He has redeemed us that we might have him, in fact. Last verse, and I'm serious on this one, Ephesians 4. Last two verses, and we're going to close with this one. As a prisoner for, for the Lord, Ephesians 4.1, this is the Apostle Paul writing, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling. We have. What's the calling we have received? A father has moved into our shame because he wants to be with us. And now Paul is coming to us in Ephesians 4 and saying, I want you to keep in mind the love and affection of a father who would invade your shame and your guilt and draw you to himself because he's just that awesome. And I want you to live your life a life of redeemed living, a life of reconciled living, a life connected to and even married to God and his purposes because God is just that great. He continues down in verse 17 of Ephesians 4. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter 4. So track with me if you may, can. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds 
and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we, all, for we are all members of one body. Verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be benefit to those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. So, so Paul goes through here and lines out in very detailed fashion, I want you to look at what it feels like and what it is, it, it is, it is like to encounter community together when you're living redeemed and reconciled. Is there need to be angry with the guy next to me in a redeemed and reconciled community? No, because I've been forgiven a ten times more than that guy. Is there need for slander and malice? Well, no, because God has forgiven me of more slander and malice than the guy next to me. How can I be kind and compassionate to my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Because Christ was kind and compassionate to me. So the call of God on our life is to seek God's interest to redeem and reconcile with one another and the world around us because that's what God is into. That's what the Father's interests are, is for us to live a life worthy of this calling of redemptive reconciliation. And God gives us an inheritance, which is a new self in Christ himself. He gives us an inheritance in Jesus. Ephesians 1.13, we'll close with this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day of our redemption, to those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. So we have an inheritance in Christ, and He's calling us in the here and now, before we're home with Him, to live lives of redemption and reconciliation with one another, because that's what God is into. Has God entered into your shame and guilt and offered reconciliation to you? Then He's saying, take that same movement into the lives of others. Where does reconciliation need to impact the lives of the relationships around you? How can you demonstrate you have enough in Christ, you don't need to hold on to our pet uh, peeves and disagreements? We can offer grace and mercy because Christ has offered His grace and mercy to us. How can we love God and His benefits and His inheritance? The fact is we start with God and stay with God. He comes into our shame and our guilt and He brings us the benefit of redemption and reconciliation.